0: Buckeye Talk. I'm Nathan Baird from cleveland.com along with Doug Maurice, my new BFF, at least for the week with Stephen Means still on vacation, but we're talking Ohio State football recruiting as always on Thursdays and the ongoing wait for the decision from JT Tui Maloau, the Washington defensive lineman, the last blue chip prospect in the 2021 class, waiting for his decision on whether he's going to pick Ohio State, whether he's going to pick Oregon, USC, or Washington. Doug, When was the last time you remember a commitment – There probably has never been one that's really dragged on this long into the process this same way, right?
1: No, I mean the only comparable one for me at this level is Terrell Pryor who did not announce on signing day in February and then waited like a month later. But I remember doing that during the NCAA basketball tournament in March. So that wasn't – that wasn't July. So, um, I mean, it's not – There's no real comparison, I think, for a lot of reasons. Pandemic being
0: uh, obviously among them. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Way way to own the news cycle, by the way. Like, Blow off National Signing Day and then announce during the NCAA tournament. That's a little unconventional.
1: (laughs) I was in Washington because that was back – I can't remember. I think maybe the Ohio State – that was the year Ohio State didn't make the NCAA tournament. They only made the NIT, and Ah, I would just cover the tournament. Like, I would just go to the nearest site then. So I was in Washington, D.C. covering, I don't know, Michigan State mcneese state and it's like oh Terrell prior prior committed i remember being in the the media room at the washington dc C. basketball arena being on like a conference call with jim Tressel, talking about like the biggest recruit in ohio state in 10 years and i was like why am i at this mcneese state game but that's how it went
0: was there like something happening back in columbus and you had to i guess everyone was probably remote uh, at that point yeah
1: i think it was i think they just did a conference call with everybody so i didn't miss anything live but yeah
0: we're going to be joined for the most of this podcast today by the guy who has owned this reporting on, on JT Tumalao's recruitment. It's Brandon Huffman, the 247 sports national recruiting director. We had a great conversation with him, not just about JTT, but about Ohio state's recruiting on the West coast and the dynamics that go into that. He gave us some insight into the family and, and uh reaction to the Ohio state official visit. And uh, as you'll hear from him later, it could happen the commitment could happen to somewhere in the next i mean before we're done recording this, which we're doing on Wednesday afternoon, it could happen um within a couple of weeks he thinks that there's there's this is such an unconventional recruitment that the timetable is still at this point completely uncertain, and we hear so much about like I hear so many coaches like kind of complain in some ways about like the timing of things and how they need to have certainty and how, um, you know, you, you can't allow certain freedoms to athletes because coaches need to have certainty and who is going to be on their team and all this stuff. But teams are, are obviously kind of rolling with the punches here and, and Ohio state has plenty of, of scholarship room. You um, haven't heard a peep from them about this being some sort of problem
1: for them. No, no. Yeah, it's not an issue. I mean, especially with the pandemic, scholarships that count and don't count and everything. Um, the, the two things, I, the Brandon Huffman interview is really, really good. It was a good job by you to like get a hold of like, hey, there's like basically one JTT reporter and we got him like right as it's happening. I'm a little amazed he did it. What a nice guy. I don't even know why he did it. Why Why didn't he say like, who are you? Why would I talk to you people? I guess it's because the guy, guy's probably coming here. And yeah, what about I guy talking? Two things I learned in the interview, one is I've been saying his name wrong the whole time, based on how Steven says it. So like Steven needs to know how to pronounce the names of five-star recruits when he's the recruiting writer. It's not Tumalau, which I've said a thousand times. Tua a malol We have there's a whole of You just have to pronounce
0: every. You just have to pronounce every vowel basically.
1: But it would have been nice for a recruiting writer to know that a year ago, Tua All right, so. Congratulations to us for saying the five-star recruit's name like 12 hours before he commits to Ohio State. Second of all, Brandon said that he did fly from Columbus straight to Eugene. We had a whole conversation about how you're not allowed to fly from one official visit to the other. You have to fly home in between. Apparently that's not true. Is that not true? Didn't Brandon say he flew straight to Oregon?
0: Again, that's, that, was the, that was the impression I got from Steven. So
1: so if Steven's on, on, on vacation listening to this, we got to get this stuff straight, man. We don't know how to say his name, and we don't know the rules. So let's work on that. Tuimalolau. Malolau. Now Malo-la. I
0: know it. It's not Maloa. Tui Maloa. Yeah, you got to pronounce every single vowel in, in the names. And I think people should uh, try to become more familiar with that, because this is part of a trend of Ohio State bringing more players of Polynesian background and, and connections to Ohio state. I mean, this is something I wrote about a couple of years ago during the playoff in, in 2019 about how players like Brandon Bowen, Tommy Togiai, um, uh, Haskell Garrett, um, Enoch Vamahi. This was like a, a thing that had kind of started and Tumala is not like the start of this. It's the pr- Tui Maloow.
1: Yeah, see, see, we're all, I know because we got
0: so used to it. We did
1: it wrong for a year.
0: Yeah. Uh, Tui Maloa is the the extension of this. It's not. I think we've gotten a couple questions like, "Hey, do you think this could be the start of Ohio State bringing more Polynesian players in?" And I'm like, "No, like it's already started. Like this is an extension. And and the guys who came here, you know, when Brandon Bowen came here, then every person that they recruited after that knew because it's hard to pull those guys from the West Coast sometimes because on on the West Coast, there's a lot of Polynesian players on on rosters out there. It's less common out east so when you get one guy here it makes it a little bit easier to get that next guy here because he knows hey there's that guy I mean he's we either have the same tattoos or he's got the tattoo that I'm getting ready to get like part of that rite of passage like there's just a that that sounds like a superficial connection but it's it's there's a connection there that I think that they've been able to use and I don't I maybe in the back of their minds they were thinking someday it's going to put us in a better position for a player of this caliber. Maybe they didn't. Maybe it wasn't that calculated, but I think it has. I'd be interested to find out um, if JT Tumalow picks Ohio State, if this was part of the decision for him.
1: Yeah, no, like Brandon Bowen, I think, right, was a little bit – Urban had been at Utah, and there was a little bit of a Utah connection there, and, like, Urban sort of – didn't work that immediately but that was part of Brandon Bowen and then I think Tommy you know Tommy Togia is from Idaho it's sort of like Tommy Togia is just like the best player in Idaho in 20 years I don't know and Ohio State got in there and then it did like you said it just started to sort of feed on itself and now they can be now they can be in the mix of schools that are like a destination place for Polynesian players just like USC and as you said Oregon and places like that already were and And it's just a a lot about a lot of recruiting is a comfort level. And if there's a guy that on your visit, you know, he's your host and you can you connect and that kind of thing. Obviously, that matters.
0: When we did a JTT podcast a couple of weeks ago and we talked a little bit about how um, rare this is to get two players essentially two defensive ends, the same position, this highly ranked in the same class. That's how for people who don't remember, that's how we got to the Royal gynecologist, which now stands as like one of the great Buckeye talk moments, probably of all time. Um, so I, I, I'm glad we were able to bring it back around to that. And I'm looking for future ways to keep referencing the world. We, I, I we, we, need to reach out. I think we can get that guy or, or girl on the pod. We'll figure mm-hmm. out like the time, the, the time difference. Cause they're in England, but, um, we'll figure something out. But I went back and looked and and went all the way back to 2000 to try to find any similar occurrence with two defensive linemen. I I expanded it to include any two defensive linemen because Tumala has been talked about as a guy who can slide inside in certain situations. We'll we'll see how that goes. But uh, there was really only one that was directly that you could argue was better in 2010, Florida landed a defensive end, Ronald Powell, as the number one overall prospect in the country, defensive tackle Dominique Easley, number four, and defensive end Sharif Floyd, number six. The thing is, Powell was not a defensive end. That was just how they were ranked on, as oh. recruits. So he ended up playing outside linebacker. So I actually would remove that. And I would say that you would then argue that this is – like no one's ever done this. No one's gotten two of the top four overall prospects in the country as defensive linemen in the same recruiting class. It just has never, ever happened. I mean, there's some other – like Clemson a couple years ago got Brian Breese and um, I'm forgetting the other guy, uh, Myers. Um, his name's escaping me right now. It's um, like the number seven player. That was kind of close if you give some extra juice to getting number one. Um, there was a couple of other cases where teams got two top ten guys, but never two top four guys. Like it's just never, ever happened. And I, that gave, that enlightened me a little bit. Like we were talking about it at the time sort of, like, speculatively, like, oh, wouldn't this be a good haul? And it, it gave a, a additional perspective on just how kind of unprecedented this would be if Ohio State gets JT maloa.
1: along with Jack Sawyer. Right. No, I, I mean, it's interesting. Ohio State's doing a couple different things in recruiting lately that, like, is hard to do. Like, two top 100 players at running back in the same class with Evan Pryor and Travion Henderson, like, that's hard to do. Stacking, like, number one receivers in the country, class after class after class, like they've done with, you know, Julian Fleming and Mekek Buka. And like, we know all the Caleb Burton, all these guys, right? Like that's hard to do. And they've done it to build a quarterback room that in two years has three guys sort of ranked as highly as CJ Stroud and Kyle McCord and Jack Miller. And then you drop twin viewers on top of that. Like that's hard to do. Like they are, they are in like unprecedented territory in multiple ways, which probably is worth re-examining. Why? Because there's the overall ranking, right? But then there's like the specificity of some of your areas of recruiting and what you're going after. I remember – and obviously what you're referencing with Florida in 2010, that's Urban. So, But that was like the whole thing with Urban back then when they signed like the number one player in like six or seven different states, I think in that class. you know. So it's like there's some specificity of like nobody's ever done this before. And that's what you're talking about with JT and Jack Sawyer. But – a lot of this stuff has to do with Ohio State. There's one reason, and Brandon says it in the interview. There's one reason that Ohio State's doing this on, on the defensive line, and we all know what it is.
0: Yes, that is Larry Johnson, as we discussed on the, the previous episode as well. I also want to point out, this was, I only went back to 2010 for this text that I sent out, 614-350-3315, and I eventually did more beyond that. But going back to 2010, Alabama, Florida State, and Georgia have all landed eight five-star defensive linemen, and Ohio State has seven. So JTT would push them up to eight. They would be tied for first in that period. And the rest of the Big Ten combined, also seven in that same period. And I think three or four of those were Michigan. So it's really – I mean, there's like one Rutgers, a couple Michigan State. It's not – now, some of that, again, some positional things get kind of fudged there. I think maybe George Kaloptas was maybe listed as a linebacker or something, but he was actually – I can't remember and he might actually—he might not have been a five star. So um, there are some fudges there, and it also doesn't include like um, Joey Bosa, not a five star. Right. It's like just barely outside of the five star level. So that's the other thing to remember. Is I've always kind of brought that up. Like as we talk about five stars, don't be like oh, Ohio State has to get a five star. You I mean oh really? So they should? Like Joey Bosa was just like nothing. Like let's let's keep things in perspective a little bit. Um, there's been some other news before we get to our interview with Brandon Huffman. Um, we had had talked a little bit about on the on the podcast uh, on am on the bffs about what was happening with brennan vernon the mentor defensive tackle it's mentor right not mentor mentor, right. mentor. mentor. Uh, today's all about pronunciation mentor defensive tackle defensive end i should say brennan vernon number 18 player overall in the 2023 class a big in-state target for ohio state when i was at camp last week and talked to brennan vernon i came out of that and wrote about how he was the latest example of this battlefield that was happening between Ohio state and Notre Dame. But the vibe was very strong that day. Like you, you, you know, sometimes you're talking to these guys and they're talking about, you know, he he dismissed Clemson and he talked about Ohio state and Alabama and how nice they were and how big of a deal it was. And those are good places and stuff. But when he talked about Notre Dame, like his eyes lit up, like there was something else there. Uh, I tried to convey in the thing that I wrote. And then yesterday, uh, uh, Tuesday evening, he commits to Notre Dame. And I think it was seen as like this big stunning move. Marcus Freeman, the former Ohio State linebacker, who's now the defensive coordinator at Notre Dame, rolling in and and pulling out a recruit. But it it didn't shock me. Um, I understand why it like stirs things up for Ohio State, but it it, it looked to me just like a a place that came in and did a good job recruiting a guy. But I think it is an indicator of maybe some of the battles that are going to be going on into the future maybe especially for, for defensive players coming out of the state of Ohio, if Notre Dame sees somebody of value there, I think they're maybe in better position to go get those guys, partially because of the foundation that was laid by Marcus Freeman and um, by the recruiting coordinator, whose name is escaping me, who was also previously at Cincinnati that had already kind of laid some foundation in the state and are now using that again at, at Notre Dame with now, now with the extra influence of Notre Dame at their back.
1: So Notre Dame's different. I think when Ohio State loses a top ranked in state kid, it's always you always make note of it, right? We made note of Jackson Carmen, we made note of Trey Dupriest back in the day to Alabama, we made note of Jordan Hicks to Texas back in the day. But I do think Notre Dame is different. Ari did a big story about this a couple of years ago. And as we said, uh, this kid doesn't go to a Catholic high school, but Notre Dame's just different. Notre Dame is not a public university, Notre Dame is not in a state frankly i mean it's in indiana but it's not like it recruits indiana it recruits nationally notre dame is just different so if michigan had gotten this guy my eyes would eyebrows would go up more if alabama had gotten this guy right because ohio state wants this guy as a five star in ohio and he gets pulled out my eyebrows go up less than it's notre dame because notre dame is that this just happens tommy kramer many years ago from cincinnati was a great ohio offensive lineman went to notre dame leah meikenberg Cleveland area offensive lineman, really big-time recruit, went to Notre Dame. This just happens sometimes. And so, yes to Marcus Freeman being from Ohio, playing at Ohio State, just getting to Notre Dame, being an awesome recruiter and a great coach, and he's going to be a head coach sooner than later. Yes to all that. But we've seen it before. And so, will it happen more while forever – for how long Marcus Freeman – is at Notre Dame. I don't know. I would like to see a little more of a trend, right? I do think it just every couple years, because Notre Dame is different. And Notre Dame for certain kids has the ability to give them googly eyes, because it's just different. It's not a public university. And I, I you were on this. You you predicted this from your conversation. You saw it coming and it came. So if you listen to Buckeye Talk and read Cleveland.com, you were not surprised by this. But I'm certainly not like on alert for the Notre Dame incursion into Ohio to start pulling like three or four of the top ten kids out of Ohio that Ohio State really wants every year until it happens. I, I just I think it's a one off. I
0: think I think that's fair. Although I will say that those names you were mentioning were not like super recent,
1: right? Liam Meikenberg just went in the draft. So Liam Meikenberg was like okay. four years ago. And then Tommy Kramer was a couple years before that, but, but. It felt like there was a little bit of a lull. And it, if, it, even if it's just like, like you're saying, it doesn't have to be like every
0: year they're pulling the best player out of Ohio. But if you, if you're consistently, I don't know, once every two, three years, I still think that makes an impact for Ohio state.
1: Well, but, but this, is this the first, when's the last time Notre Dame got an Ohio kid this good? Is it Liam
0: Meikenberg? That's what I'm asking. Like that, That's yeah. why. It,
1: so so
0: it, I'm agreeing with you that it's, it's. Yeah. Is this a is this a one off or is this the start of a trend? That's the thing to monitor now going forward.
1: We we don't know right now. I will believe it is a one off until proven otherwise. Right. You know what I mean? Like I do yeah, think yeah, it's yeah, worth monitoring. Um, Sean Crawford was that another one? That was a Cleveland kid who wound up going defensive back really good player, Cleveland player, went to Notre Dame. I remember, I think like Ohio State was like in on him, but maybe not quite as much, but another kid, another player in somewhat recent years. So again, it just, it happens every now and then, but I mean, worth noting for Ohio State fans, not yet worth worrying about.
0: By the way, Chad Bowden from uh, at Notre Dame, the new defensive director of recruiting, that was the name I couldn't remember before that's there along with Marcus Freeman and his, is. is kind of making this impact. Uh, before we get to Brandon, we want to slip in one basketball note. Uh, Dwayne Washington Jr. is not returning to Ohio State. He, uh, well, I guess he didn't announce it, but it, through the people he talked to, it's, it came out Tuesday night that he is staying in the NBA draft. It, Doug, just kind of what are your impressions of the immediate impact for Ohio State? He's obviously the leading scorer. He was, was shooting the ball really well down the stretch and kind of led them on that run in the to the Big Ten Championship game. And then, an abrupt end of that season and that sort of now becomes kind of the, the lasting memory of Dwayne Washington jr. Is that that week uh, of the tournament?
1: No, the lasting memory is that he missed all the shots against Oral Roberts. Well, okay. Yes,
0: that's fair. Yes. I mean, that's, congratulations.
1: Or congratulations on well, three of 12 from three. I think he yeah, was yeah. seven of 24 or something from something, the field. It was bad. Yeah. So, um, Uh, You know, this is, uh, you know, the national basketball people are saying, like, this takes Ohio State from, like, maybe a top five team to, like, a or a top 10 team to, like, a top 25 team. I mean, it's their leading scorer, right? He's their leading scorer. He scored more than EJ last year. So, he wasn't their best player. He was their leading scorer, which are different things. He was a – I always thought he was Ohio State's two who, if you're a really good team, he should be your third best player. But in his mind, he was their number one player which there's a little disconnect there, frankly. You should be a three. You're actually a two. You think you're a one. That's not like how you win a big gun championship. But you add Malachi Branham to that. You add Jordan Wheeler to that. You add Kyle Young is back and EJ Liddell is back. And then you, you're building more around Dwayne Washington. I think if he had stayed, we would have there would have been the opportunity for us to see the best of Dwayne Washington, which is a little tamp down right that you don't have to carry the load as much you don't have to feel the burden you don't have to force as many shots he was exceptional at times but he wasn't consistently exceptional which is frankly how a lot of us are in life he reminded me of William Buford a little bit completely different player but like when William William Buford never had to be like the best player for any of the teams he was on he was always like you know, when they were like the – well, they they're the best team in the country, and he had a terrible game against Kentucky in the tournament, and they lost. He was like their third or fourth best overall player. But he could go off. He would go off against Michigan State and win you a game. That's who Dwayne, in that, from that standpoint – listen, Buford was a shooter. Washington was a penetrator, ball handler guy. So they're very different. But that's what he reminded me of, of like, man, he can win you a game, but you don't want him to have to win you every game. So it's a tough spot. Like there's no blame of Chris Holtman here, but also like this to me is kind of like the career that like you don't want from your players. Cause it's like, he didn't do much his first year. He was pretty decent. His second year averaged like 10 points a game. Then he's good, but not great. And then right when you think he's going to be great, he leaves versus like good for four years or versus like you're an all American for one year and you leave after one year, right? Like this is kind of like in between those things, and it was good. I mean, he was a good player at Ohio State, but he also contributed to them losing to a 15 seed in the first round. So he can do whatever he wants. I don't think Chris Holtman wants to build his program around 10 Dwayne Washingtons. Like this is not going to be it. You either want some of those four-year dudes, right? who stick around and just are good, good, good. Get a bunch of David Lighty's and supplement them with some pros who are one and done, who are like elite, elite right away. And this is a very – this puts a ceiling on who you are if you have too many guys like this because this is right in between.
0: Yeah, I think that the Dwayne Washington Juniors are supposed to be complementary players to a great team. And that's not a knock. If if you're a great team, then your complimentary players are also great. If that makes sense. But then when Correct. your complimentary players have to be one of your two best players or think they're Yeah, exactly. I agree with what you're saying. And I also I I don't blame Chris Holtman really here at all either, because at some point, I I don't know. I, I'm I'm skeptical about this decision by Dwayne Washington. I mean he should go start his career. I'm never I don't really like to, like, look down on on those decisions because there are other factors sometimes at play. But the history of guys who leave early and go in the second round and then actually make a career in the NBA is not good.
1: No, I mean, there's a whole new world of G League opportunities now, right? That does help. That does help. There's a great big world of international play where a lot of – David Lighty just won another championship in France. They're going to build a statue of David Lighty in France one day. He is like one of the great athletes in French sports culture right now. The, the overseas situation life.
0: is very, very lucrative for people who don't know. It can be and very a, lucrative.
1: I mean, Ohio State basketball fans know because that's where other guys go. Because there haven't been any <laughs> any guys in the NBA, yeah. not many. Kate is in yeah. the NBA, White like D'Angelo, but like. John Diebler's made a nice life overseas. Aaron Kraft was overseas for a while. Like Sean Thomas has been overseas forever. Like It's great. It's fantastic. I would do this overseas right now. If I could do Buckeye Talk from France or Italy, I'd be there. Bonjour. Bienvenue, Buckeye Talk. But he's not getting drafted. Like, you're like, oh, it's hard to say. He's not getting drafted. What is he? Like, no offense to Dwayne Washington, but I don't – And
0: if you get undrafted, then the chances of – And that's the thing. Like, the whole point is not supposed to be – your goal shouldn't be to get drafted. Your goal should be to get in the NBA and stay there.
1: No, your goal is to make money playing basketball. I, that, right. I, Dwayne Washington coming back for a year was not going to get him in the NBA. He was not going to become an NBA player. He was not going to become a first-round pick with another year at Ohio State. Because he's not well, a no, one- clearly a, not. not a two. Right. He's right. not enough of a – like, he's good. I, and this is – he can do whatever he wants. So – this is his choice. He did have good workouts, right? He went to the first thing and he did well. Then he got invited to the second thing and he did well. But he still—I just—I would be shocked if he's drafted. I mean, maybe he goes late in the second round. But once you get late in the second round, they're taking flyers on international guys. They're not taking, hey, Ohio State's right. leading scorer. Like, that's not the thing anymore. So, right. It. But I. But I do. If there's there's no blame, but I do think it's more about Chris Holtman than it is about Dwayne Washington because Dwayne Washington's going to do what he's going to do, but Chris Holtman has to bring in players that make Ohio state better the best way possible. And so Dwayne Washington is a guy who was a little more inclined to go maybe a little bit early, which is fine. But if I guess Chris Holtman's not shocked by this, but like, listen, here's the thing about this. The way college basketball is going to work now with all the transfers, and basketball more than football, with all the one and dones, with all the transfers, with all the guys who are just going to start picking the G League over college basketball, with all the guys who are going to leave early when you think, why are they leaving, right? All those things. It does make roster management and building a team very difficult. It does. But it makes it difficult for everybody. So, frankly, I'm not that interested in coaches complaining about it because this is the world, and if you don't want to do it, then go coach in the G league. It's fine. But we Ohio state fans, Ohio state media, we are going to judge you by your team. However you assemble it. And if you thought, I thought this, but then the kid, Oh, well, if we did it, I mean, I don't know what to tell you. It's difficult, but they lost in the first round to a 15 seed and they kind of had a weird deal. They had some very successful times last year. They beat some very good teams. And then they made the AA big 10 championship game and then they lost to a 15 seed in the first round. So that's what it is. So they would have been a better team with Dwayne Washington this coming season. He's not going to be on the team, but I, I'm not giving Chris Holtman any kind of extra pass. Oh, well now we'll just wait till Chris, Chris Holtman year five to really evaluate him because it's no, like this is the world. I'm, I'm sorry. So I'm just going to judge the Ohio state basketball team unless 30 guys get injured. I'm just going to judge them by how they do. So.
0: And especially because this is to some extent, this is what you're supposed to be having in your program a little bit. You're supposed to be having guys who after their third year have good professional opportunities and they leave to go pursue those. I think what you see, it's, it's always tough to compare football and basketball, but when Tommy Togai leaves early for the NFL draft, I don't, think there was like a panic that sets in through Ohio state football fandom. I mean, they're bummed a little bit. They're like, Oh man, look how good we could have been if Tommy Togia came back. But obviously it was time for him to go, whatever. Um, I, I, and I think basketball needs to find its version of that a little bit, because I think it, it, with football, people always have a reasonable confidence that the solution is already on the roster. I don't know if the basketball fans feel that way right now, even for someone like Dwayne Washington Jr.
1: Right. I agree. So I mean Malachi Branham's role just increased a bunch. That's a that guy's a big-time recruit. Everybody was expecting great things from him this season already. He seems like a really good player, a really good person for Ohio State fans to root for. He's an in-state player. Great job by Ohio State getting him. He could have gone somewhere else, but they need him right away. But again, it is what it is. But I just the the the, the what good luck to Dwayne Washington. But we don't change our standards for Ohio State basketball because Dwayne Washington went pro, right? So, like, it is, it is what it is. Again, Mike Conley went pro and was the number four pick in the draft after his freshman year. Thad Mata didn't plan on it, didn't expect it. And they missed the tournament the next year. You know, but then they recovered and they got it back. So, But they also, Mike Conley, while he was here, helped lead Ohio State to the national championship game. Dwayne Washington, while he was here, and then this is, again, this is not about Dwayne Washington because Dwayne Washington did the best that he could do and was a very good player in a lot of games for Ohio state. But it's like, well, if, if they had gone to the sweet 16 and Dwayne Washington left, there'd been a very different vibe right now, right? It's like, Hey man, he really helped them. He helped lift the program or, or the program was lifted while he was here. Look, it was in some ways. Cause they had some big regular season wins and they did well in the big 10 tournament, but it was not in the way that people remember. Cause they lost to a 15 seed. So Ohio state still like needs to be good this year. Whoever plays like they just need to be good. And that's it. So please, please, please. And I'm not saying Chris Holtman's going to give them, but like no excuses. This is the world.
0: And, and again, I didn't watch every game of Ohio State basketball this season, so I only kind of followed them later in the season. But it definitely seemed like a team that – it really felt like a team that needed to score 90 points to win big games last year. And now 20% of that that was there for this past year is gone now. So either you've got to replace that or you've got to take a big step forward, I think, defensively in order to have the kind of season that Ohio State wants to have in 2021-22. 20, that is enough basketball talk. We are back to football. When we come back from this break, really insightful stuff from Brandon Huffman from 247 Sports about JT Tui Malowau and about Ohio State on the West Coast and several topics. It, it, it's a really good conversation. Please stick around. We're joined today on Buckeye Talk by Brandon Huffman. He's the national recruiting editor for 247 Sports, and he's based in Seattle, which has given him a unique opportunity to basically own the reporting on the recruitment of Sammamish Eastside Catholic defensive lineman JT Tuamaloa. Brandon, thanks for joining us. How are things going today?
2: Hey, thanks for having me. Good to I'm back here, in my actual native Southern California for the Elite Eleven. So you know things are good. It's 30 degrees cooler in Los Angeles than Washington. <laughs>
0: Wow. I, I saw on your bio that you went to Azusa Pacific. You're the first person that I've ever heard of that actually went to Azusa Pacific. It's always been one of those cool names that would like pop up in a, a tournament or something randomly every once in a while. So I'm I'm, I'm glad to finally meet in a, a Zuta, Azusa Pacific. Uh,
2: hey, I love it. Go Cougars.
0: <laughs> well, let's get right to the point. Obviously our listeners want to know what is the latest with JT Tuamaloa's situation? You've been following it very closely. What's kind of your read on on where things stand?
2: So, essentially, where we're at now is we're in decision day mode, and it's a matter of what day will that decision be named or what day will that decision come. It's four schools that have basically survived the cut all the way till now. As of about a week ago, there's five schools. You know, he was in the midst of his visit to Oregon, came back from his Oregon visit, decided to cancel his Alabama trip, and essentially dropped Alabama from consideration. So now, Washington, Oregon, Ohio State and USC all are sitting around waiting to see what he's going to do. And with the official visit to Alabama being canceled, they essentially took the weekend to, to kind of go dark and just to kind of recover, recalibrate. Uh, there was three straight official visits there, so now we wait. It could be a day. It could be a couple of days. Heck, it could be a couple of weeks. At this point, uh, I was texting somebody yesterday saying I did my first article on him 46 months ago when he got his first offer. And here we are, 46 months later, and there is still no decision just quite yet. So what's another few more days? Well,
1: okay, and if you, you, go ahead, Doug. Were, were you surprised that it cut out of that mix, that it went down from four to five, from five to four the way it did, or did you sort of see that
2: coming? No, I, I did not see that coming at all. And, and I feel as somebody who's been pretty close to this recruitment that it is – you know, it was a stunning turn of events, essentially, because there were so many people that thought, you know, especially when he named that the five official visits, the order that they would be and the dates that those would happen, and everybody saw Alabama getting that last official visit. And I think there was a general sense of panic from four fan bases. And then there was one fan base that thought, all right, we get the last shot. We also have Nick Saban doing that last official visit. So when Alabama – was eliminated the day, you know, essentially the day they were supposed to be heading out to Tuscaloosa. And then not only was the visit canceled, but then essentially they're removed from consideration. I don't think anybody outside of that family saw that coming.
1: You know, I, you know, I asked that question, Brandon, because uh, that's what we thought. And I didn't know if it was like, oh man, we just read it wrong. We were like, what was wrong with us? We thought family was in like great position, but it's a real reassuring to think that, okay, you're saying everybody kind of thought that the way things were going. Okay, I feel much better. Thank you, Brandon. Well, and
0: and <laughs> you I, you. I also, when I read what Brandon wrote in the aftermath of that decision, JT said something along the lines of, this is how I've been feeling for a while. and made me think that, like, in maybe in the family's mind, that's why Alabama was last, because they thought it could be the one that they could most easily take off if their heart wasn't really in it, if they thought that that was the one that was the iffiest for
2: them. You know, and that's kind of something that had been brought up. And I thought, you know what? You're right. That actually does make sense that you put the one that maybe if the feeling had been going on for a while, you put it on the back end. That's the least you still get through the four that, you know, you seriously want to consider that you seriously want to still visit. And I just think because Alabama is Alabama, I mean, let's say that would have been USC that was eliminated. I don't think it would have raised the eyebrows that Alabama did. I mean, even though. Obviously, USC still has a national brand. It's you know his mom's favorite school. She grew up in Southern California. You know, if he had eliminated Washington at the end, they were the hometown school. You know, that would have still been understandable. It's the local visit, Oregon, you know, Ohio State. But Alabama was just the one that, you know, you don't see really people tell Nick Saban no. And you certainly don't sell, see recruits so, tell Nick Saban no. So I think it was just kind of a combination of everything. But in retrospect, like you said, with that feeling kind of percolating for a while, them cutting Alabama out after the four visits were taken, you know, it does kind of add up. It's, it, it adds up. It's still, though, I don't want to say it doesn't make sense because it does make sense. It still doesn't make it easy for me to accept and acknowledge that, holy smokes, Alabama's out after being in it this long.
0: You mentioned, hey, what's another couple days when it's taken this long? But you also said maybe it's a couple of weeks. So I want to, like, address that. Why do you think it could still potentially stretch out, like, beyond this week into next week? Obviously, teams or schools have, you know, uh, classes are going to be starting and things like that. What, what do you think is still going on in this decision-making process for the family that it could still take days, not hours, to make this decision?
2: You know, I I think it's because there's been such a deliberate process that the family has, has put into this that, you know, fresh off the official visits, him coming to a decision right after the trip. So, I mean, it, it was news breaking enough, news making enough that they canceled the Alabama visit. But even still, I, I anticipate because they've gone through such a very deliberate approach to finding the schools, to taking the visits. So, I mean, uh, essentially, you could go back now and say, "All right, well, the only school they really needed to check out would have been Ohio State because he had taken unofficials to, Al- to, to Alabama, you know, when he was a sophomore, to Washington and Oregon, numerous times, to USC. So they could have visited Ohio State first and then had a decision months ago. But there's been such a deliberate process that I think it's let's let the post-glow visit or the post-visit glow kind of fade away. Let's get down to brass tacks and start." weighing the pros and the cons of each school and figuring out which was the best fit for him. So with that visit getting canceled to Alabama on Thursday, I figured just, you know, a week to 10 days. I've said for about a month now that I anticipated a decision to be made by the 4th of July weekend. I still am kind of holding out to that, but it could be another week. You know, a lot of it factors in is what is the summer school schedule? for the four schools he's considering. Is it too late to enroll in summer classes or does he now have to wait until after summer school's over, you know, in advance of fall practice starting, in advance of the fall quarter, fall semester starting. So a lot of it could be a logistical thing of which schools are allowing for admission, or I'm sorry, enrollment at this point. But I, I think it goes more along the lines of they've been very deliberate in the entire process. Now I anticipate them to be even more deliberate as they come to a decision.
1: And then I want to ask a little bit about the Pacific Northwest and the recruiting that the schools are doing there at the moment. Uh, Mario Cristobal at Oregon seems like a coach that, you know, has sort of a dynamic recruiting history that Oregon clearly is getting some guys right now. Jimmy Lake taking over for Chris Peterson. Uh, I remember when, when Ohio State played Washington in the Rose Bowl and Urban Myers last game and Jimmy Lake was there just like getting to talk to him for the first time. Seems like a really impressive guy. Um, Are they at the level, do you feel like as programs and as head coaches and as staffs where they really can go toe to toe for a prospect like this? Or do national brands like USC and Ohio State just have some sort of inherent edge over Oregon and Washington in this situation and in any situations where you're going after the best players in the country?
2: Well, I think Oregon and Washington operate differently in that Oregon in state talent just isn't great. It isn't deep. If Oregon gets the number one player in the state, a lot of times that's great. But when there's years where there's elite in state talent, even the kids top kids in Oregon leave. You know, three years ago, Tolono Hofunga, four years ago, I'm sorry, was the number one player in the state of Oregon and went to USC. He was in Oregon State's backyard. He was an hour from the University of Oregon campus and he went to USC. So even when there have been elite players in the state of Oregon, the University of Oregon has tried to recruit at a national level. They, they, they went to Alabama earlier this week, got a top 10 player in the state of Alabama to come to Oregon. You know, they two of the top 10 players in the state of Alabama in the 2022 class are committed to Oregon. So Oregon has always recruited nationally. Washington, on the other hand, there has been a good run of Seattle talent over the last probably 10 to 12 years. I mean, I, I look back to, the, the early 2010s, you had Josh Garnett, who ultimately won the Outland Trophy at Stanford. Uh, his father played at Washington, and that was when Steve Sarkeesian was at Washington. And Josh Garnett went to Stanford, chose Stanford over Washington, goes to the Outland, that same class, Zach Banner, who's now Pittsburgh Steelers. His father was a Washington offensive lineman or a defensive lineman at one point. He chose to go to USC. So then the next year, you have Miles Jack and, and Max Brown, the top two players in the state of Washington. They went to USC and UCLA. Buda Baker came in, and, you know, he originally committed to Oregon. So when Chris Peterson got there, he really had to start keeping the in-state talent. Then Washington went on a little bit of a run where they were keeping all the in-state talent. They were getting all the top players. And the tide kind of turned back when G. Scott Jr. is, you know, the, the, the recruitment from Washington been much discussed, at least in Seattle circles. But when he committed to Ohio State, That was really the first. I mean, there's been players from the Northwest that have gone to Notre Dame. There's been players that from the Northwest that have gone to Michigan. But you haven't seen a lot of players from the Northwest go to Alabama. You haven't really seen them go to Clemson. And you haven't seen them go to Ohio State. So when G. Scott Jr. committed on Christmas Day in 2018 to Ohio State, it was like the first kind of hole in the ship. Because then the next year you had a Mecca pick Ohio State. you now have the potential for JT2MO so now you're in a position where when Jimmy Lake takes over at Washington when he wants to try to keep that in-state talent, Washington might be in a position where Ohio State signs three top 50 players from the in the country from Seattle which is one more than University of Washington has signed from their own backyard so it, it's it's not that Washington, can't recruit nationally. It's that the talent, as it's gotten better, more national programs are going into the Northwest and taking them out. So I think, you know, obviously Washington's been in three New Year's Six Bowls over the last seven years. They've won two Pac-12 championships. They've played in the playoff. They're the most recent Pac-12 team to play in the playoff. But West Coast kids have always been much more open to leaving the region. So that's why I think national programs have kind of focused on it. And it's why I think, with the exception of USC, the West Coast schools have struggled to keep those kids locally.
0: This was on my eventual list of questions, but we'll just jump to it now because you, you mentioned Ohio State and the success that they're having there specifically. So we've seen Ohio State do this before. They'll find a place where maybe there's a little bit of a lull for a, a traditional power, and I would include Washington as, as, as someone who's a sort of a traditional college football power, and if there's a little lull, they can hop in there, and maybe it's only for a couple years, but they, they go in and they do what they're doing right now, pulling the kind of players they are out of there and get out sort of like a, a just a quick um, incursion into there that may be in the last a couple of years. What have you seen as far as why Ohio State has been able to have that kind of success specifically and how they've laid this foundation that is potentially now having already landed a couple of guys also landing to him
2: I remember going back to when when Urban Meyer first took over at Ohio State. In his first real full recruiting class, he landed a commitment from Marcus Baugh out of Riverside, California. And, you know, Ohio State had had some players come from the West Coast. It had players from Arizona. But it seemed like when Marcus Baugh went to Ohio State, that was the first time you really saw a concerted effort by the Buckeyes out West. And then it just started to expand from Southern California into Arizona. Into the Northwest, but from a Northwest standpoint, I think it really was the G. Scott commitment, and then it was Amechibuka. What you're looking at is two guys that are true alphas. They're two guys that everybody in the state of Washington knows. I mean, G, you know, has been was a part of two state championship teams on the probably the top program in the state. His father is a local media personality. I mean, people knew G. Scott. He played for a top seven on seventeen. Meanwhile, Amechibuka does it a year later, and so now Ohio State's becoming that kind of what's the word holy grail school for the kids of the northwest it's one thing to get recruited you know by michigan michigan's recruited up here but it's another thing to be recruited by a program that's putting guys into the nfl that's competing and playing for national championships and that's also still very selective in the caliber of player that they're recruiting i mean we've seen more committable offers come out of alabama over the last years than we ever had before but when it still comes down to it Ohio State is super select and so I think what they've done is that they've really honed in on guys that they knew we have a legitimate chance of taking this kid out of the Pac-12 footprint and bring him here and if you look at you know the the roster the last few years you've had Wyatt Davis you've had you know Lathan Ransom most recently you've got a Court Williams you've got C.J. Stroud you know just from uh, all from recent classes and then you have G then you have a Mecca Buka, and then you potentially have a JT and what they're doing is they're going after key players but a lot of those players are in key regions where they are the true dude if you will of that region so it makes it that much more prestigious that Ohio State's coming but when they come they're only targeting the best of the best and so it makes it much more exclusive and so you know if Ohio State's recruiting me I've got to reciprocate that interest because they don't just offer anybody and I think that they've it's it's not a it's not a Washington thing because UW has had a good five six year run. But what I think it is it's a it's a Pac twelve is down. Look at these guys from your region. I mean, shoot, Mikey Thomas went to a prep school for a year, but he's a Southern California product. So you look at these guys that have had success at Ohio State from the West Coast, and now you you, you jump on that. You jump on that and selling it to those recruits from that region. And I think that as the Pac twelve has slowly started to, to struggle and scuffle Ohio State's been right there at the ready to take those guys and say hey you're a dude come win a national championship come play for a national championship compete for some pretty special special awards yeah it's, it's such an
1: interesting point um th- this recruitment Brandon does remind me of Wyatt Davis and obviously Wyatt Davis was Southern California but I, I talked to Wyatt Davis for an Ohio State recruiting book I have coming out in September and he's one of the chapters and it's just that idea that Now that's class of 2017. You said this has been happening for a while, but like these West coast guys, they think the best of the best, they kind of know if I want to win a national championship, I probably have to get on a plane that like if USC's not peak USC and it hasn't been kind of since Pete Carroll left and Washington and Oregon are good, but maybe they're not quite that, that they just know that, which is why, like Alabama falling off is such a huge deal for Ohio State because it feels sort of like, well, is it like the sort of you can drive there? Or if you're getting on a plane, now you're getting on a plane to win a national championship. Now Ohio State's going against Bama. But now, really, with the four that JT has left, I mean, maybe USC's coming back now, but certainly Ohio State's been in the playoff more than, you know, any of these teams in the playoff era. It just seems like it's what you said, there's a realization of these players, these top players, I just might have to go away from home. And then it's the, I mean, you know, two years ago, the three best quarterbacks in Southern California went to Bama, Clemson, and Ohio State. So it's like, you you know, these, these national schools on the West Coast, they're not even necessarily com- competing with the West Coast schools. They're competing among themselves nationally for West Coast kids who are willing to leave. I guess that's not a question. I'm just no, following please. up on, like, you saying please. the thing and me being like, yeah, I agree with that.
2: To that point, I mean, you look at the teams that are the, kind of the, the consensus preseason top five teams going into the 2021 season. And of those five schools, four of them are likely going to be quarterbacked by a Southern Californian, and the fifth is going to be quarterbacked by an Arizona. So you've got you know Clemson with DJ. You've got Alabama with Bryce Young. You've got Spencer Rattler at Oklahoma. You've got JT Dan is in Georgia, and then obviously has CJ Stroud if he wins the job at Ohio State. And so you're, it, it's no surprise that, a lot of the Pac-12 schools are having to go out of their own footprint or getting second-tier players at respective positions because the big dogs are coming in and taking them. And I think that's what it's really becoming. Because if you go look at USC's recruiting class and if you go look at Oregon's recruiting class, both of them have top 25 classes right now. But SC, like they did under Pete Carroll, has really started to hammer the Southeast or the Southwest going into Texas and using some of the connections that their defense coordinator, Todd Orlando had when he was at Texas, going down into Georgia grabbing guys from Florida, Oregon too. But where they're, where we're at sea is not having success right now with the exception of like a Domani Jackson is in Southern California. So while they're able to recruit at a national scale, because they are a national brand, they're struggling to recruit in Southern California. Now it got better last year when they landed Corey Foreman, obviously the number two player in the country from their own backyard. From a program they've recruited a ton of, that obviously improved their stock at home. But at the same time, you're now seeing more. I mean, under Pete Carroll, Bryce Young going flipping from SC to Alabama would have been unheard of. And if you lost him, then you knew you could just go right and pivot the DJ. He'd be right there for you. You know, you didn't lose the the Justin Flows of the Cave On to Oregon. Those guys stayed in Southern California. So it, it's it's not just the Southern California the two LA schools are losing guys to the Pac-12 schools it's also they're losing guys to the national schools and for good reason. You can go play in front of twenty-five, thirty thousand 30,000 at the Rose Bowl on a Saturday afternoon. Yeah, it's a great venue, but nobody's there to watch it. Or you can go play in front of 110,000 in Columbus or in Michigan or in Tennessee or wherever it may be, knowing that you have a legitimate chance to raise that crystal ball at the end of the year. Whereas with those other schools, you're basically playing and maybe playing something called the Emerald City Bowl or whatever it's called now, in San, the Fight Hunger Bowl in San Francisco.
1: And I do think the thing, Brandon, as you know, schools like Ohio State realized it's worth it, right? It's, mm-hmm. it's harder to recruit West Coast it, it, kids. It's, it's further away. So you can't waste time. But the thing, like when they went after Wyatt Davis in 17, they realized this is legit. This is worth our time investment. And then once you get one kid and two kids – It feeds on itself, and then you're willing to do it, and now Ohio State has no problem spending time in Seattle because they know it's worth it.
2: To to give, you know, another context, and I know that Ohio State and Clemson have had some story games here over the last years, but, you know, Clemson, I think, has only offered about seven players from the West Coast and I think hit on five of those seven. So it's like with Ohio State. When they were offering a kid from the West Coast, it was a kid – that they knew that they had a great shot at, that he was really interested in leaving the West Coast. So they were selective. But as they started to have success, they started offering more guys. And then they started realizing, shoot, we could sign four or five guys from the West Coast a year and continue to camp out there because there is good football on the West Coast. It's just you don't see it at the Pac-12 schools because those best players are leaving. I mean, we watched on New Year's Day last year, you, you see Latham Ransom breaking up a pass in the end zone. You're watching Najee Harris- you know, run all over Notre Dame. You're watching Ian Book from Northern California, you know, keep Notre Dame relatively in that game. You're, you're watching, uh, you know, Clemson didn't necessarily have a lot of California guys doing a whole lot, but DJ was sitting there on the sidelines knowing that he could be ready at any point. And so when you're watching the playoffs and you're seeing these four programs all east of the Mississippi winning with West Coast kids to the 2022 kid, to the 23 kid, the 24 kid, watching at home wondering, hey, well, there's no Pac-12 teams on but these schools, man, these guys look like pro teams. It, it just becomes – you get to be selective. And then as they're selective, your, your selectivity starts to be, turn into success, then you can start to extend it more because now you become, hey, I want to go to Ohio State. It was We saw it under Pete Carroll when he was at USC. You started seeing more and more national kids saying, shoot, I want to go to SC instead of the ACC or the ACC or the Big Ten because that's where they got it going on. Now the reverse is happening.
0: Obviously, Ohio State had put itself in good position with J.T. Tuomilo out, and then but he was still insistent on taking these official visits. You're really the only person that this family talks to. So just what are your impressions of what they came out of this Ohio State visit thinking and where it put them? And I guess also the big question is this, this last Oregon visit seems to also have resonated real strong. So just what's kind of your impression of, of where the how the family kind of took in what they saw on those visits?
2: Well, I can tell you that, you know, talking to everybody in the family, well, mom, dad, and Jay, after the visit to Ohio State, I mean, it surpassed every expectation, and those were high expectations. You know, they had had been, uh, essentially, you you could say they'd been the prohibitive favorite, at least from a crystal ball standpoint, for the better part of the last 13, 14 months, sight unseen. So there were high expectations that Ohio State was going to be everything that they had hoped it would be even though they had never seen it, even though they had never been to Columbus. And I think they surpassed it. And, and again, there's, you know, two words kept coming into play and I, believe it or not, nothing against him, but it wasn't Ryan day. It was Larry Johnson. And I mean, he himself has been the primary reason that the Buckeyes have stayed in this. And it's not to say they don't have a great relationship with Ryan day. They do. I mean, they JT talked about how much he enjoyed talking to Ryan, uh, Ryan day, but, the Larry Johnson's success and the tree that he has had with his pass rushers and with his defensive linemen is something that has always been key. It's something better than Alabama's defensive line coach, Washington's defensive line coach, SC, and Oregon's defensive line coach can even come close to accomplishing or matching. And that's been one of the big selling points for Ohio State is you come here, we don't care if you're the 50th ranked DN or the first ranked DN coach Johnson is going to do a fantastic job developing you and you won't be in the green room very long come that first Thursday night of the NFL draft. So that really getting a chance to not just zoom and FaceTime with them, but to actually sit down with him and to meet him and get a feel for his personality. You know, they they raved about him even more. So I think Ohio state was in a good position going into that trip. Uh, He did at least have a day to recover between USC to Ohio state Uh, before he went on the trip, and then he goes right from, literally from Columbus, he flies to Eugene with a layover in Denver, and goes right into the Oregon visit, so yeah, while Oregon resonated, it also, you know, took on a little bit of a deeper meaning when they became the quote-unquote last visit, but he had been to Oregon two months ago, he went down there for a open to the public spring practice, so he didn't get the full unofficial visit experience, but he was on campus, he's been to Oregon numerous times, none of the three other schools that he visited could match the you know, the uniqueness, the first timeness of visiting Ohio State. And I think Ohio State blew them away. And I think they set a high bar that Oregon was going to have to match and I think that Alabama was going to have to match. So I think that, you know, from that standpoint, I, uh, before visits, I, I want to say that from just the tone, the, the energy of how he responded, he sounded tired, but he was never more, I think I wrote the most words of any of the stories after that visit. And that's, a, that's coming from a guy who sounded exhausted after that trip. So that tells you what, what Ohio State did on that visit to really impressive that as exhausted as he sounded, he still didn't seem to miss a detail in sharing how that trip went.
0: We're wrapping up now with Brandon Huffman of 247 Sports. He is actually on the road. As he mentioned, he's going to the Elite 11 camp. So he, in addition to following everything he's reporting about JT Tui Maloa, you can also follow and get some, maybe some updates on uh, Quinn Ewers, the Ohio State 2022 quarterback who is uh, competing at that camp. I, I know today also has some personal significance for you too. Brandon, can you tell our listeners a little bit about Avery's Foundation and maybe how they can learn more
2: about that if they want to? Absolutely. I appreciate you giving me that opportunity. So six years ago today, my my wife, Amanda, and I uh, were given the news that no parent wants to hear. And we took our daughter, Avery, Uh, She She's six and a half years old, took her in for what we thought was a routine eye exam and walked out of the doctor's office being told that she had a tumor to get down to the children's hospital where shortly after our arrival there, we went from thinking it was an eye issue to then being told that it was an inoperable brain tumor Mm -hmm. where there has been you know, essentially, a zero survivability of that specific tumor, and we were essentially told, "Go make a lifetime of memories in the next six to twelve months," because that was essentially the time we were given. Uh, seven and a half months later, she was she passed away after her fight uh, with brain cancer, specifically known as dipg. And so, June thirtieth always takes on a a very somber meaning for us because it is the day of her diagnosis and the day that our life changed. So. Shortly after she passed away in 2016, we established the Avery Huffman DIPG Foundation, and uh, we've raised three quarters of a million dollars for research, uh, for funding, for different treatment uh, possibilities, for different studies being done at, at hospitals—not just in the United States, but some around the world. Uh, so that if another family is given this awful news, then they will never have to be told, "Hey, go make a lifetime of memories in six to 12 months." But they will be given the news that says, "Hey, we're we're able to do something here to fight for your child." So. She fought like heck for seven and a half months and it's absolutely our, our honor to continue to fight for her. Uh, and so that you can find out if you go to my Twitter at Brandon Huffman, you'll see a link to Avery Strong DIPG, all of our social media channels are at Avery Strong DIPG. Our website's AveryStrongDIPG.org, but you know, join with us in our fight back so that other families will have reason for hope. Like
1: I Talk will be making a donation to that. And, and as a favor, if you're listening to this, and Brandon took time out of his day. Do this. This is Buckeye Talk asking our listeners to do this. Go to Brandon's Twitter and make this donation. Okay? It's a personal favor for people who have ever listened to this show because Brandon didn't have to do this interview, especially on this day. And Brandon, we're we're so grateful that you took time. Buckeye Talk listeners, let's show Brandon and let's show Avery what what this audience is all about and let's let's go donate. Yeah,
0: absolutely. Just do a search for Avery Strong if if that's an easy way to find it, too, on, on your On your search engine. It should come up pretty quickly. So, again, thank you, Brandon, for taking this time out today. I know it's it's busy for you, even if jt 2 commitment wasn't sort of hanging out there. And uh, you've got a lot going on. So we appreciate your time and, and safe travels, and, and best of luck this week.
2: And thank you, guys. Thank you for letting me share Avery's story, too, and I appreciate that. I really do.
1: Thank you, Brandon.
0: Welcome back to Buckeye Talk. This is Nathan again. I had originally recorded a little wrap-up for this episode where I had joked about how, well, this is what you'll hear unless I have to re-record it because JTT commits, and I am re-recording this, but not because of JT Tuimaloa. Ohio State did receive another commitment after we recorded the episode today. That was a four-star cornerback from Texas named Terrence Brooks, and for people who aren't familiar with him, there's a reason. It's because his recruitment has been uh, very rapid. It's It's been a quickly developing thing. Unlike JT Tuumilowau, this one has come together really fast. In April, Brooks released a Final Five. Ohio State was not one of those five schools. So I guess it wasn't a Final Five. It was just a five uh, as things in recruiting go. And then in uh, also along that same time, there were some other players that Ohio State was – trying to get in on or had been recruiting as far as cornerbacks. The the one that I think stands out from that group um, was a player named Toriano Pride, but it had become pretty obvious that he was a Clemson lean. He did eventually commit to Clemson. So Ohio State then gets in on Brooks. They offered him on, I believe it was June 14th. I think it was on around June 21st, he visited Columbus and Yesterday on June 30th, he committed to the Buckeyes. So there you go, 16 days that that thing pretty much wrapped up. I mean, uh, as everything in recruiting goes, we'll see how all that comes together. But here's the important numbers. He's the number 58 player in the 2022 class, so a, a, a significant recruit. Now, you already know that Ohio State has a handful of cornerbacks that were already committed to this class. Jaheim Singletary, number 13 overall player in the country. Uh, Jair Brown another like really highly ranked four-star cornerback and Ryan Turner a a lower ranked guy out of Florida but a guy that Ohio State thinks is um, upwardly mobile that he's maybe going to be rising up those rankings but regardless of the rankings they think they got a a good player so this would be the fourth cornerback commitment for this class what I think is important to remember are two things number one Singletary has been upfront about the fact that he's going to take some other visits. We've talked before about Jair Brown and people speculating about how solid that commitment is. And I, you never know, I think with 100% certainty, as of like this far out, how everything's going to shake out. But adding a fourth commitment to this class, I don't think necessarily signals that Ohio State thinks someone is leaving, but it certainly gives them a little bit more insurance, and especially if you're getting someone of this caliber, you know, a top 60 player. And, uh, you know, this guy has – Brooks has has really strong – um accolades obviously i mean he's uh, looking at his film you can see just the length the the kind of the wingspan that he plays with i think he's going to play well there are some body type things and in fact he's from texas where he does remind you of Akuda a little bit i'm not going to put that brand on him because that's really tough jeff Akuda obviously had just a phenomenal career here and was a consensus or a unanimous all-american so but that's one thing to remember is that you know they're, they're bunching up a lot of cornerbacks in this class but sometimes that that's giving them kind of um there's some CYA going on there a little bit. Uh, if you're uh, young enough, uh, uh, don't worry about translating that. And the other thing I would say too, is some of this I do think is a reaction to what we saw in 2020, or maybe more importantly, what we didn't see from Ohio state from like 2018, 2019, 2020, you go back and look at those recruiting classes. And I know that this has been talked about ad nauseum on Buckeye talk probably before I ever joined the the crew here, but uh, not good cornerback recruiting in those classes an absence of cornerback commitments in those classes. It finally kind of started getting coming around uh, at the end of that, but a couple of years in there that are, are a dry spell. And that I think is what kind of came home to roost in, in 2020. It was either guys, uh, years where Ohio state didn't recruit very many cornerbacks or didn't recruit very highly ranked ones. And I think there was a culmination of a lack of depth and lack of talent that hit them. when Cam Brown gets hurt then it really left them thin, and they were already thin to begin with, something we had talked about in the offseason. So nothing they can do about that now, but I think what you're seeing in 2022 and the reintroduction of Kerry Combs, uh, the success that Matt Barnes, I think, is having early in his career doing some good things on the recruiting trail, You know, that's setting them up to not have that problem again. And now you go look at their scholarship chart, a ton of freshmen, either true or redshirt freshmen, bunched up as we go into 2021. This will be, again, the fourth commitment they have if they get them all for, for 2022. They're just and, – and a lot of these guys are highly ranked guys. Like I said, Jerry Singletary, I think uh, – what I say? The number 13 player overall in the 2020 class – or 2022 class, I should say. And – um and Jair Brown is like, I think number eight among cornerbacks. You're getting like, it's at least two top 10 cornerbacks. And um, so just, just multiple guys. No, I'm sorry. Brooks is number eight. Brown is number 13. So three of the top 13, four, three of the top 13 cornerbacks in the 2020, 2022 class. Sorry guys. It's, it's, uh, it's late at night. I'm throwing this out at you to, uh, to, to try to give you the best version of BFF I can. Um, all I'm saying is I think they're, 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 Avoiding the pitfall of 2020 with what they're doing with 2022, I think they're setting themselves up because by 2022, if you think of the fall of 2022 right now, you can name a, a lot of players on this roster right now that you would expect to be veteran, proven starters at that point. Whether it's Legend Cavazos, um, Cam Martinez, Ryan Watts, Denzel Burke, Jordan Hancock, Ja'Calen Johnson. Um, you know, and then the guys who maybe are even in that safety mix, guys like Lathan Ransom, um, could still be around for 2022 as well, or, or definitely will be around for 2022 as well. And you start to see where that uh, that legacy that Ohio State has in the secondary starts to get solidified again a little bit. I don't know that 2021 will be there yet. I still have. If if you're asking me which side of the fence I'm on, I'm I'm still thinking they might be a year removed from, from getting this solved and back to its usual standard. But I I could be wrong, but by 2022, now you have that veteran group. And then now you're bringing in this class on top of that to kind of get their feet wet with those guys and then take that baton and kind of run with it at the next level. That We'll do it for this episode of Buckeye Talk. I want to thank Brandon Huffman from 24-7 Sports for joining us. Um, a great episode today, I thought, um, and the insight that he gave us. Come back tomorrow. We have um, a really fun Buckeye Fly Effect for Friday where we talk with Lee Barfneck from the Omaha World-Herald who uh, covered Big Ten Sports uh from the time that Nebraska came into the league, basically we're doing a, a Buckeye fly effect on what if Nebraska had never joined the big 10 and would that have made a difference for the whole league? Would it have made a difference for Ohio state? How would things be different? And he has some great insights too, because uh, he was the guy I got to know him because he would cover the other big 10, the rest of the big 10 outside of Nebraska kind of was how they did it they sent one guy out to cover the other big game in the league each week and a lot of times that meant um you know he was at a big 10 west big big 10 west game where he was coming to to see something with ohio state or 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 something along those lines so uh, a guy who has a good perspective on this and um you'll get to know him a little bit on friday's episode for douglay Maurice, i'm nathan baird that was
1: buckeye talk